0: Swap burning out for the fire within. Join us as we ignite the careers and lives of athletic trainers, celebrating, educating, and elevating with the Catalyzing Podcast for Athletic Trainers. Welcome back, friends, to kick off season two of the Catalyzing Podcast for Athletic Trainers. I'm Ryan Stevens, and I'm really excited to bring you a lot of great content in the next few months. took a little hiatus, uh, had a lot of things going on over the winter, COVID, uh, personal, professional, and uh, I think it's time to to relaunch now, and we're going to kick it off in a great way, similar to what we did uh, a year ago. ATSNJ in 60, the 2021 edition. The Athletic Trainer Society of New Jersey does a great job every year of putting on an annual symposium. And this year it was completely virtual. And so we're going to highlight that. For those of you who made it, it's going to be an amazing recap. For those of you who couldn't make it, it's going to give you just a little taste of what was discussed to make you want to dive in a little deeper. So we're going to summarize and do little uh, short bursts of information from all of the presenters from ats 2021 event. But before we do that, I wanna give a couple shout outs. Number one, I wanna give a shout out to the scholarship award winners, Sarah Myers, Patrick McLean, and Bridget Thomas, the future of our profession. Congratulations on your scholarships. I wanna give a congratulations to Kate Zimmerman for being the uh, elected the new Central Region representative, for Ken Cislack the new president-elect. And congratulations to Jessica Springstead, who is now our new ATS&J president. So looking forward to working with them as we move forward. We're gonna get into it. Jessica helped to set up this conference. She's also the conference chair. We're gonna start off with a conversation with her talking about the the last year of ATS&J, what's been accomplished, as well as her goals and the association's goals For the next year. After that, we're going to get into all the awesome clinical topics to uh, wrap up this year's event, and then we're going to come back together again to debrief afterwards. Stay tuned and enjoy. All right, we're going to kick off the, the recap of ATSNJ 2021 with our new president, Jessica Springstead. Jessica, congratulations on your transition from president-elect to president of the Athletic Trainer Society of New Jersey. Um, Jessica is, in addition to her role as conference chair and president of ATSNJ, she's the practice administrator at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center here in New Jersey. Uh, Jess, thanks for taking some time. I really want to talk about some of the highlights from the business meeting and some things that were key accomplishments in the last year for ATS and J and New Jersey athletic trainers, uh, and then also looking ahead. So um, first off, what what do you think are some of the the top key accomplishments of the last year for our profession in the state of New Jersey and the association?
1: Um, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I am super excited on taking on this role as president. Um, something I've dreamed about since I entered into athletic training, and um, um, one of those things that I've always kind of been on my. This is what I'll see myself in five, 10 years. So I'm excited for it to be here. Um, you know, we, despite what happened, we survived. <laughs> we are here. We are a thriving profession, um, despite the insanity of COVID. And in fact, I think. You know, probably we are one of the professions somehow that has benefited from this pandemic. Um, And I think it's just been able to be able to show our versatility. Um, We have kind of been finally fluffed up our feathers a little bit to show our ability to really jump in as we always have you know we are constantly jumping in on the sidelines constantly jumping in when there's an emergency happening and we're always that kind of silent. uh, You know Batman, you get the signal up in the sign, and um, I think we got that signal loud and clear last uh, March and we've been answering it ever since so, first and foremost, I want to congratulate all my colleagues who have been able to in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, contribute to the survival of COVID in any aspect, whether it was in addition to their full-time position somewhere else, um, or just stepping up in that time, in that realm within their current position and continue to do so. So I think our biggest accomplishment is we've actually survived and in some way we've thrived as a profession, um, really stepping up to the challenge. And I I think, um, you know, not to downplay you know, nurses, doctors, everybody else. And I'm only speaking for athletic training, but I think we've really um, stepped up and we've really thrived. Um, So I think that is probably my, my biggest proud moment as a mom um, of athletic trainers, you know, I can say um, as a society, we were still busy. We had legislative passed actually at the beginning of the year before things started shutting down. Um, and we had continued to have things being presented to the legislation when they're actually doing something other than COVID. Um, and we are continuing to just keep an eye on things and um, we don't wanna slow that progression. Um, we were able to put together our COVID task force to really try to rally together some additional resources to um, answer the um, guidelines that have come out by NJSAA, especially the first round, um, because it was so unprecedented. We just really didn't know how to digest it. So that task force really stepped up. We surveyed our membership, got an idea of how things were going. We utilized that data. We gave it to NJSAA and they used it. Um, So they might not be heeding our advice all the way, <laughs> but they acknowledge that we do have, um, you know, some areas that they have not been able to tap into, and we were able to give them that information, and we will continue to do so when appropriate. Um, but I think the next thing is that we were able to support our membership. If there were any issues, concerns, we, you know, guided and given gave as much advice as much as possible, um, and we were there as an emotional support as well. Um, I can't say enough about, you know, all the members that I've been able to speak to, especially the executive council. Um, there were many times that as we were jumping on a call, I was in tears. <laughs> I was, you know, freshly showered after a scalding hot shower, you know, coming into my house trying to decontaminate. Um, and we had to jump on for, for calls. And I I I really leaned on them because I had no idea how much of an emotional toll it really has taken, especially now as I reflect back a little bit. Um, and I think we have a lot to offer for each other. And I know AT Cares really jumped in and offered any support. There was a couple of live calls throughout the year that people could get on both within New Jersey and also nationally. So it was great to see, see that. And, um, you know, we, we really did a lot, despite the fact that, unfortunately, we had to react more than be proactive, which is more of my preference as an athletic trainer. Um, but that was everybody, I think, in my opinion. So, um, you know, a lot happened. Um, and I think we still have a pretty decent amount of momentum going into, um, you know, 2021. Uh, yeah. I would agree with goals. that. I, it <laughs> was an
0: unprecedented year and I, I think we came out of it the best possible way we could. So, um, you know, we had to be reactive, but now we're going to be proactive for this year. And, you know, what are those goals and what are your objectives for this coming year?
1: Um, I really want to, cause unfortunately last year really put a, uh, you know a halt on on things, but um, I really want to focus on our practice act. You know, we were actively pursuing sponsorships for um evaluating our practice act and really taking our um uh our society to a next level or really our perfection within the state of New Jersey uh to the next level. Um, we've been really leaning on our lobbyists, the Kauffman Zeta group, significantly to get us an understanding of okay, who should we start talking to, who can we follow up with, who can we you know, start uh, navigating with, um, you know, obviously there's lots of uh, Senate and assembly people that have already supported us in many ways. We've supported them in the bills and legislation that they have put out uh, for, athlete safety. So we're hoping to, you know, go back with them and and be able to um, be able to open that practice act when we start to feel that the legislation and, you know, the government is ready for that. Um, I'm not lost sight of that. And in fact, I really want to capitalize on the fact that so many of us have been doing so many other things, which is exactly what we're trying to tell you is that, you know, we... We're originally slated as just the athletic trainers on every sideline, but we don't have to be on that traditional sideline anymore. And over the past year, we've really stepped up to show that. Um, employers are seeking us actively um, in order to get that done because they have seen our ability to handle things. Um, and I really wanna show them that if we can handle it during an emergency, that is our job is to handle emergencies. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we, there's no reason why we can't continue to do that and grow on those um, opportunities that we've been doing and be considered as part of these um, professionals, healthcare providers, that we can't continue to do that. So that is going to be a huge focus of mine um, that we were hoping to continue with last year and and just continue to follow some of the other legislative bills that are out there there's a lot of discussion about concussion management return to school and sports um that have kind of continued to grow and we are always getting updates on different um legislation that's coming through that we would like to support um when where is it appropriate so um i really would like to kind of focus on some of that because we have a lot of action that i would like to continue to um pursue this year and um know get back to a little bit of a sense of normalcy
0: and we as the athletic training community can be involved in helping to move that action forward to support those objectives and goals what are some key action steps that you're asking of us as our new jersey athletic trainers to to really kind of continue to move forward and step up and help toward that mission
1: I mean, I think we just need to continue to be the team players that we've already been, um, you know, bring that objective scientific evidence of how we are able to manage some of these new challenges that we're probably going to see for a pretty significant period of time, you know, um, with each new level of activity that goes on with COVID, there brings new level of management, you know, the next step is, um, you know, how do we get everybody vaccinated who needs to and wants to be vaccinated? And do we play a role in that? We were just told, go right ahead, (laughs) shoot away, (laughs) Um, and let's do it. So, anytime any of you get an opportunity to be trained in order to um, give the COVID vaccines, do it. Absolutely do it. And take a picture (laughs) and send it to us so we can show the world that we were the right choice. Um, They came to us asking us to do it. They realized that, one, they don't have enough uh, healthcare providers in order to make it happen when the vaccine. Um, supply meets the demand and they put us in a group where very where we belong and we didn't even have to ask for that so that's awesome we've already shown them that we should be there we can be there um, and uh, we will absolutely be there so if you get an opportunity to now participate in this next step of the pandemic then do it because that's just going to give us that evidence of what we need to defend ourselves when somebody might challenge some of the things we're bringing into the new practice act requests. Um, I would also ask the athletic trainers of New Jersey to continue to be as supportive and um, objective as they can be. You know, I know that we are always sometimes, you know, the forgotten little allied healthcare group. (laughs) And, you know, yes, we don't always get specifically named in allied healthcare professionals, but don't take that personally. You know, um, when I was looking back, you know, we really still have not been around for very long and people still truly don't quite understand what it is that we can do. And now you have us doing so many other things. They're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Didn't I see you at my child's football game and now you're giving me my vaccine? Like, hold on a second. You know, I think we're, it's good, but it's, you know, might still confuse people. So I think we still need to advocate for ourselves, educate, and don't get mad. Just use that as momentum to just explain why, You know, like why are we still able to do these things? And I just need people to be patient. Um, I know that a lot of things come out at the worst times (laughs) and there's so much gray and there's not a lot of guidance, but the society is getting them pretty much at the same time as you are. And if you recall, we are all practicing athletic trainers too. So not only are we trying to guide you as a society, but we are also trying to implement these things into our professions as well and our jobs. So we're we're struggling with you, and we're not withholding information. We haven't gotten the information any sooner than you've gotten the information. So please be patient with us. We do the best we can to get uh, information out to the best in the best time frame, but we also don't want to be reactive and then not get some answers before we can we get clarifications on things. So I know sometimes people might think that we don't, aren't forthcoming, but I think it's because we're trying to make sure that it's digested, um, that we can, we can give you the clarifications because we have the same questions. Um, and I, we want to make sure that we don't, you know, send out this email and that email and then like, Oh, hold on. Now we got this email, you know, so we're trying to be concise and, um, just make sure that we know what we're, we're putting out there before we, you know, put it out there and we're doing the best to, um, sort through that information while still, Doing it professionally as well, and it's it's a a challenge to kind of toe the line between you know both roles that we we do as uh, and participate in as an executive council.
0: Well, I know you're trying your best. I know you have an amazing team of leadership within our state association. So thank you for everything you're doing, and I want to wish you the very best of success as we navigate through these. Uh, these next few months and this next year together. Thank you for your, your action tips. And I, I know we can pull together and make some great things happen moving forward. So thank you for your time, Jess. I'm looking forward to showcasing the highlights of this whole conference over the next couple of segments that people are going to hear. And we had a really amazing uh, uh, lineup this year. So thank you for putting that together and for your contribution. So I want to wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate, you know, your support and um, you know, the society support. It is definitely a team effort. So I need everybody to all hands on deck and let's, you know, continue to um, push athletic training forward and happy national athletic training month to everybody. um, And happy national athletic training week in the state of New Jersey. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's right. Amen to that. All right, Jess, thank you so much. Good luck with everything and take care. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Bye-bye. our keynote speaker for ATSNJ 2021. Really excited to have a discussion with you, Kevin. Uh, you know, you really bring to light a topic here that is so important for us as athletic trainers, and I'm going to let you uh, mention that. But, you know, Kevin Silva is the clinical uh, coordinator of education at Salem State University for the Athletic Training Education Program. And again, you are our keynote speaker here at ats 2021. So I want to get right into your topic of do athletic training students demonstrate behaviors associated with emotional intelligence skills? First of all, why is emotional intelligence important for athletic trainers to better understand?
2: So first off, thank you for having me You know, on. I know I have a short window of time here, but one of the most important parts of why athletic trainers need this, what I call the missing link is because we're often told that we have to perform in a certain way. So whether that be communicate effectively, whether that, uh, you know, represent all those key aspects of professionalism, but we often don't give students and young professionals, the foundational skills, the building blocks to allow somebody to recognize what effective communication is. How do you effectively demonstrate empathy? And all of those key concepts are rooted in emotional intelligence and whether you can, recognize, regulate, utilize emotions, then to better understand uh, and influence and manage social and emotional situations that we run into uh, when we're delivering patient care, whether that be with uh, the people we work with, such as coaches, administrators, colleagues, and then obviously the patients.
0: And that's so crucial that that we do understand what all makes up emotional intelligence and kind of, you talked a lot about perception Uh, in your presentation, the importance of self perception, and you know, what other people see us as and, you know, I want to also get into those those core emotional intelligence competencies. And I love how you that that uh, diagram you showed about Mm -hmm. unproductive state versus a productive state. Can you break that down a little bit when you can be when you're unproductive versus productive emotional intelligence realm?
2: Absolutely. So the model that I like to use for emotional intelligence, and it's really a framework, it's made, it's uh, created by uh, the Genos group is out of Australia. So I do want to give them Uh, credit for these seven um, kind of factors or competencies. And they all are associated with behaviors, like you said. And the best way to describe this is there's two types of people who work in uh, the workplace. And this can be any setting. It's universal to human interaction. And what I call the wrecking ball people uh, who are very unproductive. And they leave a trail of kind of emotional baggage or emotional complications uh, with the people they work with, whether it be patients or colleagues. And in those unproductive states, these individuals are sometimes seen as temperamental, insensitive, guarded, uh, inauthentic. And they tend to have problems interacting on a professional level, whether that's communicating with patients or or colleagues or or demonstrating empathy. These individuals also tend to be reactive. And so they kind of lead themselves down a pathway of uh maybe not so good decision making when it comes to interpersonal uh, behaviors then on the other side of this is more of a pilot or a navigator somebody who can see from a bird's eye view the emotional and social aspects of human interaction and these are the individuals who are very productive they have higher levels of emotional intelligence they're able to recognize not only emotions in themselves but in others and they end up being more present, more empathetic. They come off more authentic. They're the calm, cool, collected one. They have much better control of how they interact with others and how they approach situations.
0: And you, I think you, uh, you talked about the amyg- the amygdala hijack, and that's that's happening when we're drifting to the left of this. Yep. You know, we, we get controlled by our emotions versus being self-aware of what we're feeling. Um, And I think that's a tough thing to do to to really become self-aware to that level that you know when it's coming before it actually happens.
2: No, you're absolutely correct. And the amygdala hijacking really when somebody has a hyper stimulated limbic system and their their neurobiology is rapidly responding to stimuli. And this could be, for example, even approaching maybe a coach that you know is very difficult to work with or you don't have a good rapport with. And before you even start that conversation, your amygdala is starting to prepare yourself for that fight or flight response. And so you're already entering that uh, conversation or that experience with heightened levels of cortisol and adrenaline in your system. And if you get into that fast reactive pathway, just like you said, we're impulsive, we're reactive, we may say or do things that uh, we know aren't, you know, maybe appropriate or handle them the right way. Uh, We kind of are controlled by our emotions, whereas individuals who have better control of those situations, and it starts, like you said, with that reflective Inner control of why do you feel frustrated in this scenario, or why do you leave this experience stressed or anxious? And those are much more productive uh, experiences once you can harness that um, skill set of of why your behaviors are maybe coming out the way that um, they are in those certain situations. And so that slower pathway. The individual is more calm, cool, collected, uh, more calculated, more thoughtful. They listen better uh, and they typically talk less.
0: So so how do we get there? Uh, I want to leave things off with your top one or two action steps for athletic trainers to better demonstrate those emotional intelligence behaviors to stay on that slower pathway.
2: So I think the first thing that uh, athletic trainers need to do, and this is why I'm so interested in this topic is because we don't talk about it enough. Um, and we, we spend so much time on the hard skill and knowledges that we need to do our job. But if I had to start somewhere, I would ask people to step backwards a little bit, see what's going on, observe their surroundings, observe how they are in their surroundings. So the perception of other people, and then start with that reflection process of saying, okay, when I'm frustrated at work, why? And it's not just kind of journaling or it's not just kind of thinking like, okay, I was frustrated today. It's digging deep into that one moment of why you were frustrated, why you were stressed. Or, and again, I use frustrated and stressed a lot, but why did you feel burnt out at the end of the day? Or why did you have some type of negative emotional state from something that happened at work or happened with a patient or a colleague and reflect deep into that one moment of why? and try to unpack what's driving that feeling. And then now you're in the uh, kind of pilot seat or the navigator seat to say, okay, how am I gonna stop that from happening that way again? And as you get better at it and identifying that emotional response, you can then be the one in control of managing that situation. And you'll be able to predict the outcome. You'll be able to actually have positive influence over the people you're working with and so on and so forth. So reflection, And really stepping back and looking at uh, what's going on around you from a 360 view. Look at yourself from the balcony. That's what you got to
0: do. You got to be aware. And that's such a crucial thing. Uh, I really appreciate you bringing this topic out and diving into it. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. And I look forward to seeing some other great stuff from you coming down the road.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, everyone, we are moving on to our next segment, and I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Patrick Buckley. He's a sports medicine surgeon with University Orthopedic Associates here in New Jersey. And at ATSNJ 2021, Dr. Buckley, his topic was, does youth participation increase the risk of CAM development and hip femoroacetabular impingement? So we're talking about FAI. We're talking about the, the volume of, of athletics that youth are participating in. As they're developing, and, and Dr. Buckley, I love how you got into this topic, uh, in, in a deep way, especially really focusing in on how 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 cam develops. Um, but I want to first start off. You talked a lot about the dangers of early sport specialization. Can you kind of talk about the key points and main takeaways you found with that?
3: Yeah. So first, Ryan, thanks so much for having me on here. It's it's a pleasure to talk to you. And you know, this is a topic that I'm um, pretty passionate about. And and I, you know, we could talk for an hour or two on this. I'm sure. So um, it's a pleasure to be here. But um, you know, early, um, sports specialization, certainly you have to understand what you're talking about. And I think if we define that as basically an athlete who is participating in one sport, um, kind of at the exclusion of other sports, um, for more than eight months out of the year is kind of what we define as an athlete who is over, uh, or highly specialized. And, uh, you know, that's something that the trend has certainly been going and happening at a, a younger and younger age. Um, and the dangers is really kind of what we I think a lot of us have seen both in the in the office as well as on the uh, on the fields, which is, you know, many times uh, the athlete is doing the same sport and they're using the same sort of muscles year round. And they're not having a time for rest. Um, and that is leading to overuse injury. And there's been a number of publications in the last kind of five to seven years that have shown that specialization, that definition we just talked about is independently of everything else a risk factor for overuse injury. Um, so that's certainly the main thing is because those things add up over time. Um, and you know, I know the goal is, you know, someday to probably be and uh, compete in, in that sport at a very high level, but obviously sustaining an injury and especially injuries that are more significant at a young age uh, can very much affect that. So you know that's the first thing we really worry about. And then it's really the psychological part of it. Um, where a lot of times athletes are having a lot more stress on their um, kind of psyche. Uh, There's a lot of potential, um, you know, um, you know, things that you're putting on them that they may not be ready to handle. um, And many of them will burn out. So that's a trend that we're seeing. And certainly that's something that I tried to focus on and try to educate the group on, you know, with that discussion and the presentation we did on Monday.
0: And I love how you spoke to the fact that there really is no, evidence that shows early sports specialization actually leads to elite level attainment for athletes, whether it's, you know, division one or a professional. I think that was great that you made that point. And, and also one of the concerns of course, is when they are specializing early or they're overtraining as they're developing the risk of cam deformities. So can you talk about that? You know, what, what are some of the causes of cam deformities, but especially the, the impact on change that happens doing during their growth cycle? Uh, due to physial stress?
3: Sure. Yeah, I mean, so the cam deformity is kind of that bump of bone on the junction of the femoral head and the femoral neck. Um, I very basically in the office will kind of describe it as that, you know, square peg and a round hole. And as you come up into flexion, that um, cam bump will come up and basically impinge or contact um, the acetabulum or the socket of the hip. Uh, so that is something that we see and as you trace that backwards, you can try to look for the reason or the rationale why that's happening and the short answer is it can be a number of reasons. Um, there can be things like a skiffy, which is a slip of the um, uh, epiphysis or the growth plate at the proximal femur. Um, there can be other kind of acquired reasons uh, like Perthes disease or prior fracture, things like that. Um, but for the vast majority of them it's kind of this idiopathic process that happens. and you know, one of the exciting things in our field is that we're starting to understand the reason behind it. Um, And when you look and you look at prospective studies that um, follow athletes from basically a structurally normal hip before their growth plates have kind of closed and follow them throughout their growth plate um, development and and closure, um, the studies uh, and the research have basically shown that the, um, the growth plate Uh, and the cam deformity are very kind of closely linked and that would increase stress on that growth plate, especially in that period of high growth, kind of in that critical period of 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, that the cam deformity not only develops, but is kind of matured. Um, And this is something where often the soft tissue will hypertrophy, the growth plate will respond to repetitive stress, often in high flexion, internal rotation type activities. And the same way that our body does in in other places, the growth plate will make more bone, and it makes more bone in the form of a cam deformity. And at the time, it probably doesn't cause all that many problems, but over time with repetitive flexion, internal rotation, that's what a cam deformity um, can cause problems and has been linked to a higher risk for arthritis in the long run.
0: And, and as an athletic trainer, when we're dealing with, you know, the athletes coming to us, when it does start to present with pain and and functional limitations, the hip is a complex joint and there's a lot of structures, a lot of causes for hip pain. And, And you spoke about the importance of really having an algorithmic algorithmic approach to evaluating the hip. Um, Kind of speak to what your general algorithm is for addressing the hip, but also why is it so important that you do have that specific approach uh, in this case?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, um, you know, again, that I think all starts with listening to the patient and trying to understand where they're having symptoms and what are the activities that make that um, exacerbated or make them worse. So first of all, you know, you start with listening to them. Often um, people or patients or athletes who have hip pathology will complain of groin pain. Um, and it's important to ask where that groin pain is. Um, you can have more posterior-based pain, especially with pincer impingement. But I do think there's been a little bit of a trend um, you know, in the last five or 10 years to calling everything impingement, where probably 15 or 20 years ago, everything was maybe more of a groin or a hip flexor strain. And so you know, it's important that not everybody's labeled as a hip flexor strain the same way that not everybody is labeled as um, impingement. Um, and so, you know, not only will I listen to the patient, try to understand where their symptoms are, but then on the exam, understand the type of things that will, you know, make that worse. So very specifically, I'll look at their pain with flexion and internal rotation. And I think this is where um, you don't need any fancy tools. You don't need any real specific tests. And this is something for a lot of athletic trainers, where if you're examining an athlete, um, especially during that pre-participation physical, there's a couple studies that I've looked at and kind of highlighted in the talk that you know, mentioned about having a lack of internal rotation when the hip is in 90 degrees of flexion. And if you have less than 10 degrees of internal rotation, you know, that's something that should really kind of pique your interest and say, you know, could there be something more going on? And I think traditionally those athletes were just labeled as very tight hips and just nothing really happened with that. And I can, you know, certainly think of a number of wrestlers who were just told this and then nothing happened. But those are the ones who really probably should be identified as potentially getting, you know, more work up and at least a more kind of formal evaluation to look at that. Um, But that's an algorithm and that's something that I go through with every patient, starting with their history and then working through the exam to try to really identify the right structure, um, an area that's causing their symptoms, not just labeling everything as hip pain, and then kind of having the same blanket approach to treating them.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for diving into that. It was a great presentation. And hopefully, you know, the, these little snippets, uh, along with everything else that, that was presented at J really gets people to dive into this topic a little deeper so that we are staying up, you know, up to date with current trends and, and helping our athletes with hip pain. So, Dr. Buckley, thank you for your time
3: and uh, appreciate your insights. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. All right,
0: we're back with another segment. Now we're going to bring you Dr. Kenneth Churn, who talked uh, about the indications for hip, hip arthroscopy in the athlete. Uh, Dr. Churn is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine for Seaview Orthopedic and Medical Associates. Dr. Churn, thank you so much for taking some time to, to break down some of the key takeaways from your talk. And I want to just get right into, you know, first and foremost, you, you talked a lot about FAI. Femoral acetabular impingement. Can you kind of talk about what the common findings are that, that lead to someone experiencing that and having that?
4: Well, in terms of symptoms, um, most of the time people will have pain uh, localized to the anterior groin. But as I mentioned in my talk, there um, just because you don't have pain in the anterior groin area it doesn't mean that you don't have FAI. There are atypical presentations where patients can have lateral and posterior hip pain. But usually it starts out with pain in the groin uh, with mostly flexion uh, and adduction uh, type of movements, uh, the classic example being the uh, the hockey player uh, goalie, who basically spends quite a bit of time with the hips internally rotated and adducted, um, and that's usually that's usually it. It's very typically a groin pain that they uh, start out having.
0: And, and you mentioned you know one way of addressing, especially if there are structural. Um, Issues you know within the the joint or whatnot is the aspect of hip arthroscopy. Can you talk about how that procedure has you know progressed o- over time, how the evolution of that procedure? And second, you know, when should an athletic trainer? What are some red flags that should consider referring an athlete to be evaluated for potentially needing surgery?
4: Well, the um, the in terms of the evolution of the uh, hip arthroscopy, uh, certainly at that uh, hip arthroscopy has gotten significantly more popular since the concept of FAI was introduced by Dr. Gans. And that was uh, relatively recently um, within the 20 to 25 year time frame. And b- basically there is um, the structural uh, lesions, um, whether it's uh, over coverage uh, because of the acetabulum or because of the cam lesion present in the femoral head, there, are le- there is a conflict or an impingement as we see, um, you know, Subacromial impingement or rotator cuff impingement in the shoulder. Uh, we have uh, femoral acetabular impingement uh, in the hip. And once those structural lesions were recognized as a cause of symptoms, and uh, they were addressed initially uh, with an open procedure, actually opening the hip up, dislocating the hip, and then contouring the acetabulum or the, the femoral head in an open fashion. But that, uh, w- with the advent of uh, hip arthroscopy uh, dislocation of the hip is no no longer required. Rather, uh, just by some simple traction uh, instruments, uh, you know, arthroscopic instruments uh, and a camera can be introduced into the hip joint, and that uh, that that procedure of reshaping the femoral head or uh, reshaping the uh, the rim of the acetabulum in femoroplasty and acetabular plasty has uh, developed into a minimally invasive uh, type of procedure.
0: Now that's it's amazing how you know, procedures change over time. And as it just the, the, the way that doctors can go in with minimally invasive techniques, you know, it used to be, you have to open it up completely and go in and I can just imagine the scar tissue involved with that and the complications post surgery. You know, what are some typical post-surgical complications uh, that you, that with the newer procedures, are they significantly less risk of infection um, quicker return? What are you seeing with the difference now?
4: Well, I think certainly when you start doing things with a least a, lesser inv- a less invasive type of uh, you know, uh, approach, certainly you know, post-operative pain is lessened. Uh, the amount of soft tissue healing uh, in, in terms of how the, the, the skin and the muscles that have, you have to go through to get to the hip joint uh, uh, you know, happens more quickly. Now the fundamental healing, let's say you do a uh, repair of the labrum. Well, whether you do that arthroscopically or open, it's going to take pretty much the same amount of time for that labrum to heal. But certainly the, uh, you know, the advent or the application of the arthroscopy to the hip joint has really revolutionized uh, the, uh, the field basically. Yeah.
0: And it also has really impacted rehab uh, and return to play protocols as well. And uh, one thing, whether it's, you know, after surgery that that happens, or something that's kind of going on that may not be realized, you mentioned about hip micro instability, and I love how you equated it to uh, shoulder multidirectional instability. You know, tell us about that. What are your thoughts on that? How, how can we miss that? Um, what are we looking for when it comes to suspecting an athlete might have micro instability happening, either before surgery, or potentially as an after effect of surgery that needs to be addressed through rehab?
4: Well, certainly not. anybody that who has a systemic uh, joint laxity, and, you know, you can basically test this by looking at their flexibility. Uh, if you can oppose their thumb to their forearm, if their you know, all their joints go into hyperextension, and if they have such flexibility that they can get their palms to the, to the floor while, you know, with their knees straight, um, then, you know, those are signs that somebody does have significant uh, joint laxity. And in, in, in any kind of uh, surgical procedure, um, you have to be aware that, you know, that the, somebody does have significant ligaments laxity because that can affect the surgical result. And in the case of the, the hip joint, um, you know, there were, um, I think, failures that uh, have been, you know, uh, looked at in terms of people who are very uh, flexible. And if, uh, Uh, for example, you know, at the end of the procedure, when you, after you do your capsulotomy to get inside hip joint and do all your various procedures, such as the femoroplasty, uh, I think it's essential that you have to close the uh, hip capsule. So you basically tighten the capsule up, uh, at least to the point, to the, to the, you know, the extent that it's tight when you found it or make it even tighter than it was before. So certainly, if you don't really uh, close the capsule, uh, that can lead to you know instability after the surgery. Um, but certainly, there's also other um, forms of microinstability. There's a the bony microinstability in the hip joint because you let's say you have a shallow acetabulum because you know you were uh, born with a hip dysplasia or you develop hip dysplasia at an early age. That's uh, that certainly can lead to microinstability. So the term microinstability. Um, basically means that there's excess of motion within the joint. Now, that excess of motion does not have to amount to the degree that, you know, you have a subluxation and dislocation, but it's just the idea that if the, uh, the femoral head is not perfectly centered on its, you know, the, the acetabulum and is rotating around a constant axis, uh, if it gets off axis, that can cause problems.
0: Really appreciate you, you diving into that. And I love how between yourself, Dr. Salvo and Dr. Buckley, you know, the really great picture of, of the hip. It's a complex joint and all three of your talks complemented each other really well. So thank you for your contributions to that. I uh, really appreciate you diving in with me.
4: Well, thank you. It was a pleasure uh, to meet you and do this uh, video. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Chern. Have a great day. Uh, take care now.
0: All right, everyone, we're on to our next segment. I'm really uh, excited and glad that we can present Dr. Jamie Mansell from Temple University. She's an associate professor and director of the athletic training education program at Temple. Very important topic for us to to reflect on and to be aware of. She was talking about sexual harassment, protecting yourself and protecting your patients and really put it in the frame of, of the life of an athletic trainer. So, uh, Jamie, thank you so much for for talking about this topic, and I want to get into some of the main points you discussed in your presentation. The first is you talked about the importance of being intentional and, and very self-aware of what we say, how we say it, and what we do in our environments. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Why is that so important?
5: Sure. As healthcare providers, we need to ensure a safe environment for our patients. Uh, the patients have to feel safe with us. They have to feel like we have a welcoming environment in order for them to come to us. Um, so we're really doing them a disservice if we're not advocating for them, if we're not um, you know, being careful of the words that we choose to use. And I think we have to keep in mind that we're not in the business of just ankles and knees. We have whole patients and whole people that have a lot of things that that go into that. So I think when we're looking at this from the holistic and patient-centered care practice, we really have to be intentional um, and, and look at that whole person approach. And I think that sometimes people don't realize that some of their words or some of their actions can be perceived in ways that are different than their intentions. Um, And I think my biggest message there is if someone is interpreting your words or your actions as harassment or as misconduct, then that's kind of the line. You've crossed over it. We apologize. We make better choices as we move forward.
0: And that goes along really well with uh, what Kevin Silva was talking about, emotional intelligence, about it really being linked to perception, what others think and that I'm so glad that you you mentioned that because that's so crucial that self-awareness and especially when it comes to sexual misconduct sexual harassment and you mentioned that there was a spectrum that occurs you know a spectrum a continuum of the different levels or types of sexual misconduct that that occur at work can you kind of speak to what is that spectrum and continuum
5: sure so the continuum is pretty vague and it leaves room for a lot of question um, but essentially you can think of it as going from generally not offensive down to egregious misconduct. So things that are generally not offensive, maybe some remarks on your hairstyle or your dress. And then as we continue, maybe awkward, mildly offensive. Now we're talking about you know, things that might imply that gender distinctions are unfavorable. Um, when we move down to offensive, these are usually gender insensitive or maybe acting in a superior manner. Highly offensive are normally when we have these intentional, degrading uh, remarks. Um, Evident sexual sexual misconduct is when we have behaviors that are crude or physically intrusive. And then those egregious sexual misconduct actions are usually involving coercion, sexual abuse, um, rape, and things of that nature. And I think it's important To know where these things fall on that continuum. But I also think it's important to remember that a lot of other things play a role in that. So your previous relationship with the person that you're speaking with, your tone, the way that you carry yourself, your eye contact. So if I'm talking to one of my good friends and I say, you know, that sweater looks great on you, that's probably going to be generally unoffensive and they're probably going to say, oh great, thanks, I just bought it yesterday. But if I say that to someone that I don't have that previous relationship with, and maybe I linger a little bit too long on a certain body part, or I raise my eyebrow, or I say it in a different tone, then that seemingly inoffensive comment can really carry a lot of different weight, and it can move along that continuum to somewhere uh, to somewhere else.
0: And, and you also mentioned that the environment plays a key role as well. You know, not only knowing your relationship personally with that person, uh, but also the environment and the, the importance of having a, a safe, supportive environment. Can you talk about some tips that athletic trainers can keep in mind to really create that positive, diverse, inclusive, respectful work environment to really minimize the, the risk of this happening?
5: Sure. I think one of the things that we need to think about in the beginning is starting with the overall culture of the organization. And something that people might not agree with when I'm talking to some of my students and they're looking at places of work, um, you know, and they interview somewhere and they say, you know, there was just something that happened in the interview that I didn't really feel good about. I usually say, then that's not the place for you to work if there's something in the culture, maybe you're at the interview and somebody starts to talk over you, or maybe you're not addressed by your you know, formal title. Um, those are small indications that the overall culture is probably not one where everybody's voices are heard. So if we start to appreciate and cultivate this diverse and inclusive and equitable environment. Um, and I'm talking, you know, even beyond gender and, and sexual harassment, but even for religion and race and things like that, you know that's that's key early on. And then I think we need to always cultivate that culture. So it's it's something that we consistently need to work on. How do we show that we have concern for others? How do we show that we have respect for the other workers that we have? We need to work on our cultural blind spots. So these are things that are explicit biases, as well as our implicit biases. Explicit might be a little bit easy for us because those are things that we know that we have a bias against. The implicit are going to be a little bit harder because those are things that are operating at a subconscious level that we really need to dig to find out. And sometimes our implicit biases are antithetical to our known belief system that, that we tell folks. Um, so one great way to do that is the Harvard implicit bias test. Um, I think we also need to watch our tone. We need to watch our language and we also need to make sure that those around us are also watching. So if we have coaches or athletic directors or colleagues or peers, or even athletes and patients that are using inappropriate language or their gender policing, we wanna make sure that we're putting a stop to that. The AT facility and the healthcare facilities should be safe environments that we're, we're welcoming everybody in. They're our patient, we need to take care of them. It's part of our code of ethics to do so.
0: And what I love is that on the NATA website, there's a lot of great resources for for members as well, um, just to help you know how to deal with those difficult situations because we don't always know how to handle that when we hear it from a coach or when we hear it from someone else. Do I say something? Do I not? How do I say something? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, one of those other areas that we don't always know how to handle is like if we are in the presence of someone that we know is a victim of of sexual misconduct or we suspect might be. How do you interact with that? That situation. What are what are some tips for handling that the right way?
5: Sure, I think first I want to say we don't always know what people have in their background, so I think it's important that we always operate on a level of respect, and we always um, you know kind of think. About our words and you know choose them. That's kind of our, our theme here. We choose those words wisely because we never want to put somebody in a situation where they already feel intimidated or feel um, you know like they can't speak with you. So I always kind of operate at that level of knowing uh, of not knowing what's in someone's background. So from there, we want to make sure that we're listening. We're there to listen to support. If people are disclosing things to us, they're doing so for a reason. They've identified us as a safe haven. They don't need us to talk over them. They don't need us to ask questions and to probe. We just need to listen. Um, You then also need to make sure that you're following the policies at your place of employment. So Title IX coordinators, law enforcement, human resources, always know the policies before it becomes a problem. Um, It's not your duty to decide if something is misconduct or not, that's not your job. Your job is to follow that chain of command um, as appropriate. You also want to link your victim or, or your patient with counseling or support services. And again, you need to have those resources available before something happens, because we don't work a nine to five job in AT. So we've got to make sure that we've got those resources available, um, both nationally and locally uh, when we need it. And then just like we do with our ankle sprains and our concussions, et cetera, we need to maintain confidentiality in these areas too. This isn't, this isn't something to gossip about. This isn't something to tell our colleagues and our, and our coaching staff, et cetera. Um, you know, we're, we're that confidential healthcare provider.
0: Dr. Mansell, thank you so much for, for hitting these key points. Definitely something that we could all dig deeper into as well. Uh, your presentation was great at the, the seminar this year. So thank you very, very much for bringing this topic into the limelight and having a conversation around it. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. For the next breakout session from ATSNJ 2021, really excited to have on our, our guest here, Dr. Charlie Gatt from University Orthopedic Associates here in New Jersey. Uh, Dr. Gatt is the Chief of Orthopedic Surgery at the Rutgers RWJ Medical School. And uh, he spoke to the the topic of pain management for sports surgery, can we be opioid free? And so Dr. Gatt, thank you so much for talking about this very important topic uh, for athletic trainers to, to stay you know up to, to speed on. And I wanna get into some of your key takeaways from your presentation. The first thing is you talked about there are certain risk factors Um, and and certain uh, things that you're looking for in the prevalence of opioid misuse in athletes, what should we be looking for? Um, What are some of those risk factors and impacts in the prevalence of it?
6: I think the biggest risk factor is actually having used opioids prior to surgery. So, you know, a lot of athletes have been to the emergency room with ankle something as simple as an ankle sprain or a knee injury or shoulder injury, and they leave the emergency room, you know, in the past, luckily it's not happening as much anymore, sometimes as many as, you know, 30 Percocets or Vicodin. And that's a lot of pain medicine for a relatively minor sports injury. Then they, you know, they, they use them maybe to get a good night's sleep after the injury, or maybe they are in a fair amount of pain. They get to know the feeling. So, but then, you know, they've, they've had that feeling. So now they've come around and they actually need surgery where, you know, sometimes you do need some opioids for pain control after surgery. And that seems to be one of the biggest risk factors for misuse of it after surgery. And that's You know, if you look at most of the research on it, you find that kids that have been given opioids for surgery have an up to 30% chance of misuse of the opioids after surgery, even Mm -hmm. into their college years. And um, it's not that it's chronic misuse. It's more you know, recreational misuse during their free and easy years. And then, but it's not really necessarily a risk factor for chronic misuse, which is good news.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and as you're looking at that post-surgical phase where there is a lot of pain um, to be managed, uh, you had a lot of great ideas of what doctors are currently doing right now, uh, non-opioid approaches. You, you did mention that you know we, maybe can't, we, we can't be completely opioid-free. There are times if you're doing it responsibly. But for the most part, what are those non-opioid approaches you were talking about that can really help with post-surgical pain?
6: I think, number one, from a surgical standpoint, the surgical techniques that we're using these days, um, especially for both the shoulder and the knee, uh, use peripheral nerve blocks, and that's been a big bonus to us. Anesthesiologists can put in a very small indwelling catheter into the nerve that innervates the the surgical field. Um, And then in the past, the nerve blocks were six to eight hour to maybe 10 hour blocks, and they would wear off. Um, But now we're using, what they call pain pumps, which basically drip a small amount of marcaine onto the nerve for up to three days. The patient's just given a little elastomer ball and it lasts for three days. They can actually turn it up and turn it down a little bit if they need to. So they can, you find that that will provide good pain control for up to three days. And again, if you look at most of the research on adolescent sports medicine surgery, number one, the kids only use about one third of the prescription medication that they're given and number two they probably don't take most of them don't take narcotic pain medicine for more than three days after surgery so where I do um, surgeries like knee arthroscopy under local anesthesia or I was using preemptive analgesia for my ACL reconstructions and big shoulder reconstructions before the peripheral nerve blocks I could always get them out of the surgery center or out of the hospital and they'd feel great you know for a day but then it was those le- the other two days that were the bridge, and now we have this pain pump, which I think has made a big difference. Yeah. The other thing is is also just educating them before surgery, telling them that you know you're having surgery and surgery hurts. I think for me you know, to tells tell somebody, oh, this isn't going to hurt—that's that, not really realistic. Surgery does hurt. So if the kids have the approach that they know it's going to hurt, and I'll tell them, you know, a lot of times you can control your pain with Advil or relief or Tylenol rather than going to the narcotic pain medications. If, if they hear that from me as a physician, I think they take it to heart and they, they really try. And to tell you the truth, with some of the modern techniques that we're using, a lot of the kids, the only narcotic they're taking is at nighttime and say, hey, I really just took it to go to sleep, rather than not because they were having pain and they don't want to wake up because they've all been forewarned, oh, you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night in really bad pain. But, yeah. So they might use one or two pills after surgery and that's reasonable, you know, that's not so... And in light in light of that, what we've done is we've cut down the number of pills that we give them after surgery. We all used to probably routine thirty was like the magic number. Now I'm down to fifteen, uh, actually as low as twelve pills a day. Twelve pills as their prescription for after surgery, and and very few patients will call for a refill. And we know now that they're not you know left over with you know eighteen more pills that they don't know what yeah. to do with.
0: And you also talked about mixing drug classes too, and how that can help. Also, can you kind of speak to that briefly?
6: Sure, multimodal pain medicine. Again, you know, and you see it with using anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or naproxen combined with acetaminophen or Tylenol. You get the different; they both have uh, affect pain through different mechanisms. But by using both of them, both mechanisms are activated, and you get an enhanced symptom relief by using the two different pain pathways or pain preventing pathways.
0: Yeah. And, and you mentioned the importance of education and uh, also during your presentation, you quoted a study where there were patients who, who saw a, a two minute video and they were provided education. And, and just that little amount of education made a huge difference in the risk of misuse. Uh, can you kind of talk about the importance of, of education from the perspective of the athletic trainers who are working with these, these athletes post-surgical and also in advance of them having surgery? how can the athletic trainers best educate our communities and the, and the student athletes that we
6: work with in this area? You know, athletic trainers have such a great relationship with athletes. And for me as a physician, I, I count on that a lot. And, um, you know, you guys evaluate the patients on the field. You decide if they need to go to the emergency room. And I think, you know, number one, one of the things you can forewarn them is, hey, you know, a lot of times you can, I want you to go to the emergency room, make sure it's not a fracture or something bad. But if they give you any narcotic pain medicine, you might even want to think about refusing it, or if you take it, you know, take it very, you know, be very careful with how you take it and explain to them that, you know, getting started on opioids because of an injury is a pathway to misuse of opioids. And I think when they hear that, their parents certainly know about it. I mean, it's, it's all over the news right now, but I think the kids need to hear it directly from people they trust. And I know that, you know, the athletes trust the athletic trainers. So that's step number one is like, you know, saying, you know, you don't need to take narcotic pain medicine because you're in pain because things like ibuprofen and acetaminophen and naproxen are more than adequate, a good ice pack, a good pressure wrap, all the, the you know, the primary first time care that you guys provide to them on the field. Then, you know, if you know your athlete is, you know, going to go for surgery, it's the same thing, Saying you know, the, the surgery, you know, you're going to have some discomfort after surgery. Um, you know, the doctor is gonna give you some pain medicine, but a lot of the procedures that are being done don't really require narcotics per se. And if we can get you back into the training room or get you into physical therapy early, even some of just the plain old soft tissue manipulations and soft tissue mobilizations that are done in the very early post-operative period are provide pain relieving effects. So letting them know that it's like, for instance, when I do an ACL surgery, I start PT, you know, no more than two days after surgery. And it's not, that, it's not that we're doing a ton of, you know, moving the knee or anything. A lot of the early is just, you know, soft tissue mobilization, getting rid of swelling and things like that. And that helps the pain tremendously. So again, we have non-narcotic, you know, this is a manual way to help alleviate pain. And it's a big part of the procedure. So getting the buy-in from the athletes before surgery always pays dividends after surgery. <laughs>
0: Dr. Gat, thank you for for talking about this important topic. You know, in the state of New Jersey, of course, we know that uh, athletic trainers have to have mandatory education annually in this, and you know, absolutely all athletic trainers should be trained in the administration of Narcan in the, the event that there is uh, an opioid emergency. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, it never gets to that point you know, around yeah. you, but it happens, like, sadly. So we have to be prepared for it, but uh, thank you so much for, for talking about this topic. I appreciate everything you do for sports medicine and athletic trainers here in New Jersey and uh, you know, continue to, to do those great things. So thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day.
6: You too. Bye-bye.
0: All right, friends, our next segment of the ATS and J in 60 podcast, we're going to really focus on current concepts of shoulder instability. And I'm excited to have Dr. Chris Spagnola, on to talk about uh, a few of his key take-home points that he presented. Uh, Chris is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports medicine, and he works with CVU Orthopedic and Medical Associates. So, Chris, thanks for taking a couple minutes to, to chat about some key takeaways, and I want to get right into some of these key points. The first thing is you talked about, you know, what what athletic trainers should be looking for when they're assessing for a possible acute or, you know, recurrent dislocation. Uh, so, what are some diagnostic approaches that what trainers should be taking when they're looking for that.
7: Well, thanks for having me uh, today. Uh, Of course, a couple of things. When you approach a player, these injuries happen so fast. Sometimes you can't tell that the force was violent enough to dislocate the shoulder. It usually happens when the arm is abducted and externally rotated. So someone landing on an outstretched arm, a, a player trying to be tackled and their shoulder pops out. So one thing went into the complete dislocated shoulder they will be very uh, much in pain and apprehensive. They'll be guarded. One of the postures that athletes will take with the dislocated limb involving uh, the shoulder is the arm will be adducted at the side with internal rotation and they'll hold it close to their body and be a- moving. Their exam is going to show limited range of motion and uh, they to be very guarded. So uh, if you have a thin athlete and it's uh, and they're out of their pads and their shirts off, you might see some dimpling of the skin um, from the distraction of the shoulder. It usually is in an anterior and inferior uh, position. But
0: these are some things to look for in your clinical exam. And you mentioned that if there's a, a posterior dislocation, they can commonly be missed. Why is that?
7: Posterior dislocations uh, sometimes are not as painful. They will have a little bit of uh, range of motion And when you take an x-ray on the uh, x-ray, depending what view you get, it may not look dislocated. So from the emergency rooms, because for about every 20 anterior shoulder dislocations, we might see one posterior, they're commonly missed.
0: And that's uh, that. That's something that uh, we have to be aware of because if you're going to miss it, and you, especially if you you don't suspect it, you just suspect it's a sprain or you know a basic sprain or strain, and you send them back into play, then you're setting them up for more significant problems. So, ats need to be aware of that. Um, what happens? Okay, let's say you do identify a, a definite dislocation. What considerations should the athletic trainer be taking pertaining to? Should I attempt to relocate this? Should I not? Um, and then you you talked about the the various approaches to, to relocating as well. What would your advice be for athletic trainers?
7: Uh, assess the situation, assess the player. Uh, do a quick neurovascular exam, make sure they're able to wiggle their fingers, you know, extend their thumb across their fingers and make a fist. So they're neurologically intact in the upper extremity, uh, take a pulse. And if they're good, when you guys assess them quickly, the muscle spasm hasn't settled in yet. So a lot of times they can be reduced with very little problem. So if you have a, a mechanism that you're pretty clear cut with a shoulder dislocation, the exam's consistent with a shoulder dislocation. The dental maneuvers okay to try. Uh, some of the things that I've mentioned in my exam. A good way to do it is if you can get them to your training room and put them prone on a table. You can tie weights to their to their wrists with a bucket of water, some weights that you have, and just leave them gently distracted for 10 or 15 minutes. And sometimes that will do it on its own if you catch them quickly. Other times you can just, after they've been distracted for about 10 minutes, you can put a hand on the scapula and just push the scapula immediately and pull the arm towards the floor and it can gently snap back in, pretty much atraumatically. and giving a you know, maneuver like that, it, it's okay to try once. If it doesn't go, don't try multiple times Then you can ship them out to the emergency room. But if you can get them quickly. You save them a trip to the ER, you save them constant sedation and uh, can take them out a lot of pain. For, plus, the longer they're out, sometimes it can cause more instability as well. So getting reduced quickly is really
6: important.
0: When you were talking about the the scapular approach to relocation, like I, I don't know if I've just missed that, but I thought that was genius, you know, because then you're focusing on Opening up the space and just trying to let the arm do its own thing, that let the humerus do its own thing. But if you clear the scapula, rotate it out of the way, uh, I thought that was a, a great approach that that could really help for people that are really guarded. So uh yeah, that was awesome.
7: really guarded. It's very achromatic, mm-hmm. and like you said, it just opens up the space so the shoulder falls back, and you're not really doing much traction. The, the traction counter traction technique when you throw a sheet around the person, pull
0: the arm, that's a little more forced and, and you know. No more The other approach saying prone is a little easier. Absolutely. And the last thing I'll just mention for the athletic trainers is make sure you have a great relationship with your team doc, your overseeing athletic training medical director, because you should be having these conversations with your doctor about what are you comfortable with? You know, is there something in your plan of care if your state practice act allows it? You know, what are you allowed to do so that you and the doc are on the same page? Uh, whether it's, you know, you got to get on the phone with the doctor before you do it or or whatnot. So that's a really important conversation the athletic trainer and the physician should have that you most closely work with. Uh, the last thing, Doc, is I want to talk about the, those key rehab and return to sport considerations that you believe in uh, when you're handing that athlete back off to the athletic trainer or they're returning to, to rehab. What are you looking for after dislocation?
7: So, um, you know, you're getting through those three phases of rehab. Initially, you want to let the inflammation calm down, slowly regain motion. Once you've got your motion and pain under control, you're going to add in strengthening. And once you have good strength and full range of motion, you want to add uh, some some dynamic uh, activities like plyometrics and sport-related activities. And when the athlete's got near full range of motion within 90% of their full range, near full strength and uh, no pain with athletic activities, they're okay to resume practice. In this type of injury, I will let uh, students and athletes resume their current season. And if they do need a surgical procedure, it can be done at the end of the season.
0: That's good to know. And that's always, you know, especially if you're dealing with a high profile athlete and you know, what is their future? That's always a, a, a intricate decision to make in terms of, do you go into surgery? Do you put it off? Um, so it's good to know that, you know, as a physician, you you support looking at all aspects of that, and you know we have to really make a big a big picture decision when it comes to that athlete, what's best for long term as well as short term. You know, if it's a collegiate or professional athlete versus a high school or middle school kid, big difference.
7: <laughs> sure, I, I think it's very important. I think one of the other things to to look at is if um, you have a football player who's wrestling and he dislocates his shoulder, I'll tell him you know, why don't you stop wrestling? Let's fix and get ready for football season. Or if it's a football player looking for a college scholarship, it's a senior year. We want to get him back in play so we can be as many games as possible so we can get seen by the scouts. So you have a lot of flexibility and it's very important to see what the athletes really looking for out of his sport.
0: I appreciate that perspective. Uh, Dr. spagnola that was a great talk. Thank you for your key takeaways. Uh, appreciate your contributions to sports medicine in our state and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Next up on the agenda, we're going to talk about monitoring training load in collegiate soccer athletics. And I'm really excited to have Dr. Aaron Pletcher on. Uh, Dr. Pletcher is an assistant professor at Thomas Jefferson University in the athletic training program. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for taking some time. And I want to really get into some of the key points from your, your presentation, talking about load and how load influences training and recovery. Can you kind of break down internal versus external load and how those factors influence training recovery and fatigue.
8: Sure, so thank you Ryan for having me and thank you for covering our ATSNJ conference Um, part of my speak was because I was grateful enough to receive uh, grant funding from them to do some of the soccer research. And so to answer your question, uh, we can look at load in two different capacities, which you mentioned, external load. So that's the work that's prescribed to an athlete. And so that prescription could be in our team training sessions. That could be in our strength and conditioning out-of-season sessions. Um, We can measure that by the number of minutes that we're training. We can measure that by the miles that we're running the number of accelerations and decelerations specific to soccer. A lot of the soccer literature measures external load by those accelerations, decelerations. They split running distance into high speed, which is five meters per second um, or 5.5 meters per second and sprint speed, which is seven meters per second. We can also look at internal load, which is how the athlete individually responds to those external loads. And so if an athlete, if the whole soccer team is running two miles, that's our external load. Our internal load could be measured by perception of effort. So readings of perceived exertion on a scale of one to 10. This two mile run was a 10. I think I'm gonna throw up and die. Or we can measure it by heart rate. We can measure it by lactate. You know, What are those physiological changes occurring in the body?
0: And, and when you're monitoring those, you you talked specifically about the importance of monitoring fatigue. And I I love how you described the different stages of fatigue and specifically you talked about this thing called functional overreaching stage. Can you kind of talk about those stages of fatigue and then why we as athletic trainers, we want to help along, you know, help our supporting cast, keep those athletes from going beyond that functional overreaching stage.
8: Yeah. So great question. So every time we exercise, we have some sort of state of fatigue. That's how we get stronger. That's how we get faster. When we allow enough recovery time, we call that super compensation. And so if you're looking at, we're starting at a baseline, we do this load, the athlete gets tired, but if we allow that recovery, then they start to get better at strength speed again, whatever your intentional target, um, training is for. And so if we don't allow that recovery time and we continue to overload our athletes, then we get to this functional overreaching. And that just means we need a little bit more time of recovery for them to get those positive benefits. So it's short-term fatigue, short-term performance uh, decrements. We move from functional overreaching to non-functional overreaching where we're just tiring our athletes out. We're running them and running them and we're not ever going to get any positive benefit from this. And so as sports medicine clinicians, our whole job is injury prevention and then injury rehab. And so we prefer the injury prevention part Um, that non-functional overreaching is gonna lead eventually to the injury rehabilitation part. So we get past any sort of positive benefits from those training sessions where they're just, their body is breaking down and unable to build itself back up. If we continue training and give them no rest at all, we'll get into overtraining syndrome where we see a lot of overuse injuries, um, a lot of chronic fatigue that that's months of recovery before they're gonna get back to even their baseline capacity.
0: And it's great to think about that spectrum and puts it in a better perspective uh, in terms of monitoring and the importance of monitoring, because I can imagine it's kind of a very fine line between one stage and the next. So as athletic trainers, what are some su- suggested strategies that you have to help facilitate monitoring fatigue, whether it's you yourself as an AT or working with your strength coach or your, your sport coaches, what do you suggest focusing on?
8: Sure. So that's a great question. That was part of the study I did. A lot of the literature is with elite athletes. So they have maybe a different baseline fitness than the athletes that I was working with. Um, and they use heart rate and GPS, which those systems are tens of thousands of dollars per season for every season. And so we were looking at other ways that we can measure fatigue. And so traditionally we look at heart rate. And so if there's an increase in resting heart rate, you know that that individual's body has to work harder to keep up. When they're exercising, doing the same training session they did last week, their exercise heart rate is higher. Again, their heart has to work harder to keep up with those body demands. So heart rate is one measure. If you have the ability Um, with smart technology now, you know a lot of people have Fitbits, Apple watches, we can incorporate that if we're able to. I use the Just Jump mat as a measure of, explosiveness or more neuromuscular performance. And so in the literature that has been shown to be sensitive to fatigue throughout the course of um, training seasons. And so to look for a decrement in jump height, I think even just talking and educating the athletes, getting them to understand so we can do sessions of uh, readings of perceived effort. And so getting them to listen to their body and know When they are feeling fatigued, explain to them what the signs and symptoms are, but also talking with the coaching staff who is giving them that prescribed external load. um, That sometimes your athletes are tired and they're not, you know, trying to get out of a practice or get out of a training session. Like that's just the way that individual athlete's body needs extra recovery time to respond in a positive manner.
0: And that all wraps up into the importance of teamwork and collaboration between you as the athletic trainer, can't just do that all yourself. No, So that's so crucial to have those conversations with your, your colleagues and your teammates there to make sure that you're, you know, across the board, keeping an eye on those risk factors, helping to monitor, looking for those red flags that you talked about. That's so crucial because you're not going to see it all as the AT.
8: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a large part, I feel that our job is educating. Educating a student athlete, educating their parents, if that's the environment you're in, educating the athletic director, the coaching staff, the strength and conditioning coaches, um, because our goal is for them to win games. We don't want to hold them out. Everybody gets grumpy when that happens. And so, yeah. you know, trying to prevent that from happening to begin with. And if they need, you know, an extra day of rest to be able to play the next four games that we have to travel for this week, then maybe give that a try and see if that helps.
0: Great tips, Aaron. Thank you so much for taking some time. Um, we all need to dive into that fatigue component much, much more depth because prevention of injury is the first thing we got to focus on. So thank you for taking some time and for sharing your insights and your research.
8: All right. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. All right. Next up uh, in the conversation, we're going to highlight the use of tandem gate and best Testing for concussion management. A, a wonderful presentation by Jacqueline Morissette, who uh, gave this talk at ATS&J 2021. Jacqueline is an assistant professor and the program director for the athletic training and sports medicine program at William Patterson University in New Jersey. Jacqueline, thank you for your time, and I want to get right into some of your main points because you really honed in on the concentration and coordination aspect of concussion care. And and first, I want to talk about, you mentioned the importance of understanding the difference between cerebral and cerebellar system assessment. Can you get into that a little bit?
8: Yes, of course.
9: Thank you again for having me on the podcast. Um, So the big thing, and I touched a little bit more on it because it is more involved in both topics I talked about with best testing and the tandem gait, but cerebellar testing is looking at is looking at your balance. And it's not just balance from I can stand on one foot or I can stand on unstable surface. It really has to do with how we move and how our body maintains balance as we move. And so proprioception is another term people use, kinesthesia is another term people use. And it's really how the brain functions, how we get visual input how that visual input goes to our brain, tells our joints how to position themselves, and then how we maintain balance as we do that. And so if we're, again, I use, the, I use the example, if you're walking and you are looking at your cell phone and you miss a step or you trip over something, it's because you're not getting that good like visual input to your eyes because your brain can't process and make all the connections. So we trip, we fall again. No, joint position, balance are all off. So that's the big part with the cerebellar. With the cerebral, it's the cognition. So it's what are what else can you be doing? while you're moving to maintain posture and balance. So if you're walking down the street or having a casual conversation with a friend or a person, or maybe you're in a running group or a bike club and you communicate with each other, you're now doing a cerebral task with a cerebellar task. You're having conversations, you're thinking about some things, and then you're doing another task. And so when there is a disruption in that, potentially caused by like a concussion or any type of head trauma, Um, it can now cause there to be a miscommunication between those systems, maybe with each other, maybe with each parts of what their respective um, functions are. And so with that, we can now have a lot of issues when it comes to, you know, not only can uh, our patients like have issues thinking in the classroom, but their movement patterns and how it affects them uh, post concussion.
0: And that's why you spoke to the importance of really noting postural swaying and gait assessment post-concussion. That's what you're looking for. So dive into that. What are you looking for with that? Why is that important to really keep an eye on?
9: So one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, most of the activities uh, that our athletes doing are in multi-planes. They're going to be moving in lots of different directions um, and very quickly. Um, And so if there is any disruption in their regular sagittal plane postural sway, it's going to translate into other planes of motion that our, our, our patients are going to be moving in so if you're doing um you know it's really hard to see postural sway in a dynamic function um with best testing because you're standing very static which is why i'm a bigger advocate for the tandem gait or at least in addition to best testing because when you're having them walk in that sagittal plane and you're qu- making them do it on that line they have to be balanced while they're moving dynamically. Again, I mentioned this in my talk, like that is not exactly the most sport specific activity but it's a lot more movement specific than say closing your eyes and standing on a piece of foam. So with that, watching any type of abnormalities during that task can really give or indicate that there are still some sort of miscommunication between the brain and how your body needs to move efficiently and effectively without injuring yourself further. So it's really important to identify even frontal plane movements or even if someone's moving slower. So um, I don't know if you remember, I, I spoke about the differences between the SCAT-3 and the SCAT-5. And in the SCAT-3, there was a time restriction, but they removed that in SCAT-5 because 75% of the patients that they looked or they viewed, I think they were mostly high school athletes, failed the test. So it's a good use of testing before and after with timing, but it's not good as your standardized number. It's hard to pick a standardized number for that.
0: And when you were talking about the, the tandem gait test, you, you indicated it was a, a three meter length, you know, heel to toe steps, walking down and back as a way to get an assessment on that. And then going back to what you mentioned earlier about the fact that everything we do is dual task, you called it, you know, walking and talking, etc. So you can build that into that that tandem gait exercise, but also as further evaluation with those, especially with those who are maybe, not able to communicate their symptoms, and you know whether it's hidden or just they can't verbalize what they're feeling.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Why is it important that that an athletic trainer incorporates dual task activities? What are dual task activities, for example, that they could be doing in their assessment, but also in the rehab return to play.
9: Uh, very good question. So um, again, doing any type of dual task activity, we do multi-dual task activities probably every day, you know, um, like I said, walking, running, thinking about what our patients do for their sport specific activities. So, you know, it's really, it, it's pretty critical for, uh, for us to incorporate that even in an evaluation with an evaluation. If you are, if a patient seems that they are well enough to do a dual task, what I mean by that is You've assessed their balance. It seems to be okay. They're doing the tandem gate. You're really not convinced that they're moving really well. You can add a word recall months of the year backwards. Like I mentioned, I'm not a big fan of the serial seven, but some people like it. I mean, I get to like 93 and I'm like, I don't care anymore. So, so, you know, finding something, something that makes them think more, to then again assess, are they having any postural difficulties? Um, and then, you know, that, that can give you more indicator from a, from a, an evaluation perspective. I haven't seen a lot of people use it for evaluation because usually it's tough to even get to like a, usually you see them balance on one foot and you're like, forget it with their eyes open and, and it, doing the tandem gate at that point is really not that critical, but as a, a post, Concussion, or even as a rehab tool, let's say you're like, I don't have the time to gait test everybody. Well, you can still use this as a rehab tool. And, you know, if they get really well at balancing and they get really well at the tandem gait, and then you start to throw into some words um, to make them start dual task. And then I've even had people take a few steps, kick a soccer ball, take a few more steps, head the soccer ball, you know, doing something sports specific, uh, you know, toss them a ball too, because now it's requiring them to stop get in either like a position where they stay in that or they're balancing. And now they're doing something sports specific because they need to make that decision on how to catch that ball, how to head the ball, how to kick it. And so you can really tailor your dual task to whatever you want. I didn't really mention that much in, I was, again, there's a lot, of, I had a lot to say in a little bit of time, <laughs> but that's definitely something how you can make it so much more sports specific than just throwing the words. The words might be like low level and then you start increasing difficulty to get more and and again you don't even have to limit to just the the three meters you can use a runway you can use you know a a field and do cutting and just you know create more uh sport specific scenarios and situations so that way you know that they are ready to go back out and they're not going to injure themselves further
0: Jacqueline these are great tips concussion world is ever changing and it's growing and I think athletic trainers do a disservice to themselves and their patients if they don't keep up with the latest trends and you know we don't just do what we've always done in that world that's more important than anything so thank you for having these conversations and talking about these things because this is way different than what i learned in school and this is happening with a lot of other cases too so we have to be sharp with this and i'm glad you brought it to the attention we can all dive into it deeper and have a better understanding of it so thank you
9: yes thank you thank you for having me again
0: you're welcome have a good day thanks you too All right, next up today, we're going to be talking about Achilles tendon injury, and we're going to really get in and compare the conservative versus surgical treatment approaches. And and Dr. Swan from University Orthopedic Associates, he's a sports medicine surgeon. He's going to talk about some evidence-based approaches that he uses, and that he's done some research on to really get into that. So, uh, KG, really glad to have you on this episode to to break down. I enjoyed your talk, Uh, and it's ironic, uh, just one of our – our situations today, one of our athletes, one of our schools had an Achilles tendon rupture. So, so it's like the timing of it was, you know, when you put this out there on Monday and today is Thursday and just happened, it's like right in my head, I'm thinking about that stuff. So um, thank you for, for talking about this topic. First, I want to just ask you, can you compare those non-surgical and surgical uh, approaches uh, talk about like healing rate timeframe, and maybe just give some general overview of you know when you do one versus the other and what we have to think about as athletic trainers.
10: Sure, sure. And thanks. First of all, thanks for having me, Ryan.
0: Pleasure to be here.
10: Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to think about and a lot that goes into it. Uh, with many things, uh, and especially with Achilles ruptures, it's it's all about the patient, the individual. Uh, what, 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 where are they in their life? How old are they? What are they what are they doing in their life? What got them into this situation? Are they on a on a particular team? Are they the quote weekend warrior? Uh, are they older than that? do they have any other health conditions, comorbidities that would put them at risk for some of the surgical complications that we really do uh, worry about in certain patients. And so for me, uh, it separates patients somewhat into the, the, the somewhat, if you want to call them intense athletes or very involved athletes, um, certainly the younger athletes, the pro athletes, high school or college athletes who have a long career ahead of them, they are all potentially going to fall into that surgical category. And then the others, uh, more the weekend warrior type, or those with comorbidities that that put them at risk, are ones who potentially fall more into that non-operative uh, uh, cohort. Um, and people do cross over in both directions, uh, but uh, but for the for the weekend warrior type, um, the majority of the evidence does tell us now, this newer evidence over the past decade, uh, that a non-operative treatment protocol uh, is, number one, safe, and number two, effective. Uh, And these are two different things, really. Um, Is it going to heal, and is it going to re-rupture? Yes, it's going to heal, and we can um, very much decrease that re-rupture rate and improve that functional rate if we follow the newer protocol, which is the earlier range of motion and the earlier weight bearing than what we used to do a few decades ago. I
0: love I love how you mentioned that because that was really eye opening during your presentation, um, talking about the importance of early protected range of motion. And that goes in a lot of things right now. A lot of times where would be like, you know, protect it, cast it, isolate it, and, and a lot of different kind of rehab now really benefits we're seeing from that early range of motion and weight bearing and. It, this is applicable in, in Achilles rupture too. So can you get into that? Why is that important? And what are, what are we seeing in the outcomes of those that are starting that right away?
10: Yeah, yeah, and so uh, it is interesting. And, and um, I guess the natural, the natural uh, concern or the natural tendency is often just to lock something up and try and let it heal and don't let it move and let it heal right where it is, whether it's, maybe that comes from our knowledge of fractures, which we often have to keep stable to let a bone heal. It does need a relative amount of stability. Um, but on the other hand, many fractures do want some weight bearing. We, we, we know that uh, from our, from our uh, biomechanics in orthopedics. And the same goes for, for tendons, but that took us a little longer to figure out. Uh, a- animal literature, as I mentioned in my talk, did, did has shown us that uh, once again, not only is early weight bearing safe, but actually early weight bearing, uh, increases the amount of collagen around that healing tissue. So it actually, there's more tissue and it's stronger. So early weight bearing is important for that. And similarly, early range of motion, uh, in the, in some of the literature shows us that, uh, it's a, it's a better construct once it heals, it's gotta be done in a controlled fashion. Both of these, obviously, uh, you can't go running on an Achilles, uh, after it's been injured, but, uh, Uh, in a controlled fashion, uh, it does actually help the healing.
0: And I think that's the most important part of it is, you you know, we're seeing that structural change from that load, the collagen enhancement, um, which is hopefully going to reduce the risk of re-injury and it's going to set them up for better, better strength. Even though you mentioned during your talk, you know, initially there is decreased strength. um, You know, the strength and function might be a little slower with a non-surgical approach, you know, but, long term it looks like it's actually a really good thing for the body to heal itself and to build that up so um yes yes really and,
10: and you know to to be fair uh if, if someone's a, a pro athlete someone's a high level younger athlete and they can't miss a step they can't yeah. you know be once 1.1 one, 0.1 seconds off their 40 or can't lose a half an inch on their vertical uh they're gonna get a repair because we we think and i think the literature does show that repair does give us probably uh, a, a little bit better or quicker function over those first one to two years and a little bit lower re-rupture rate, um, a little bit better healing. So with a little bit higher risk um, of the surgical complications. So the non-operative protocol is, is very good, but, um, it, but it's not perfect, um, you know, cost-benefit analysis.
0: Yeah. And, and can we talk about that real quick to wrap things up, the, the minimally invasive versus open surgical approach that you talked about what are some differences that we have to think about from a rehab perspective and, and time frame and healing?
10: Right, so the minimally invasive is a nice in-between between the non-operative and the operative. It is repairing that tendon, but it's a much smaller incision. So we have less uh, concerns over wound complications. Uh, once it's repaired, it's a robust repair. So the rehab uh, protocol is, is, in my hands, no different for the minimally invasive versus the open. And for that matter, actually, my my early rehab for the non-operative protocol versus the repair, open repair versus the MIS, minimally invasive, they are quite similar. All three of those categories get put in a splint for the first couple of weeks, uh, two weeks. And then after that, they're allowed to start with the early range of motion and protective, protective weight bearing at that two-week mark. So early on, it's actually quite similar other than the surgical incision that has to be monitored. Um, It's when do they get back to play? uh, When do they get back to doing some of uh, the more dangerous uh, activities? And for the non-operative group, we'll probably delay that a little longer, but for the minimally invasive versus the open, tends to be the same.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much, uh, KG Swan, Sports Medicine Surgeon with University Orthopedic Associates here in New Jersey. Great, uh, great topic. Thanks for diving into that and and breaking it down a little bit for this, uh, for the segment. So I wish you the best. Good luck with all your, uh, your practice uh, initiatives and I look forward to talking with you again real soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. That wraps up another exciting ATS and J summary podcast episode. I loved doing it last year. I loved doing it this year, and I look forward to doing it again next year. And maybe you're another state association out there who would love to have some sort of recap podcast episode. Reach out to me, catalyzingpodcast at dot com. would love to work with you to put something together for those key takeaways for both those people that made it to the conference, but also those who couldn't make it. And in no way does this replace coming to the conference but what it really does is is get you thirsty for learning more about these topics so i want to thank all the presenters who took some extra time with me over the uh the last uh, week or so after this symposium to pull this together you can also find individual video interviews of all of the segments on vimeo.com catalyzing ats so the catalyzing athletic trainers vimeo page it's vimeo with an m Check them out there. Share them if you love them. Help other athletic trainers to elevate their their careers as well. Thank you so much for taking some time. I'm looking forward to the rest of this season too. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, a lot of great uh, guests and, and topics that are going to get you thinking. And most importantly, again, happy National Athletic Training Month to all of you out there. You've made it through this episode You've now joined the Catalyzing Athletic Training Team. I appreciate the, the time that you've taken to listen. Reach out to me if there's anything that we can do to help you. If there's anything that you want us to talk about, we look, look, for, look forward to hearing from you. Go out. Continue to do those great things that you're doing. Make this the best National Athletic Training Month we've ever had. Showcase your stuff. And friends, I look forward to seeing you next episode. Take care.